Die Arbeit ist eine Vorsicht, sie hat eine Autonomie. Sie kann dich Her family has been involved in rituals for generations. She is currently in extensive therapy. Sigmund Freud removed that last vestige of what magic was all about. But what's happening right now in America is witchcraft trying to take this country over. Why would we not worship goddess? Why would we not love goddess? We're in trouble, ladies and gentlemen. The clockwork elves, all of it, I shouldn't even get into it. We are putty in the hands of brilliant magicians. Does this I checked the stats for the first time in like a couple months and there's actually been like some decently sized releases so I figure we should finally get around to talking about those, right? Well, technically one of these isn't Statusphere, it's Greg Stolze, Select. It's all contributing to the same mishmash of cultural unconsciousness and shit. I mean, like, there's a, a small enough group of people reading this that someone... Keeping up with uh, some of that stoles he's putting up on drive through is probably going to be noticing this other thing, too. I know it's a small number of people are reading, but the overall readership is quite large. And the fact that the government is still paying Stolze to put this stuff out, I feel like the CIA could be spending its money better. Like, I'm not, not, not dissing the quality of his work. I'm just wondering how effective of a psyop it is, you know? We'd all love the CIA to be more efficient. Uh, yeah, maybe I shouldn't. Uh, I know th- I know you guys are listening. Maybe I shouldn't be giving them advice. All right, let's cut the chase here. Torps and I have, well, bitched before about the lack of scenarios that are out there for Unknown Armies, third edition especially. In the past few months, we have had to eat those words as not just one But two scenario packs have been released for the third edition of Unknown Armies. And we're going to talk about them. We're going to have them duke out and uh, see which comes out on top. As we were discussing earlier, the first is uh, a new release from Papa Stolze himself. Bring me the head of the Comte de Saint-Germain. A heist scenario of the sort that only Unknown Armies could really have. And in the blue corner, the dark horse, my friend of the show, Catherine Cargill, about a year ago, came on the show to talk about her scenario pack, One Shot's American Dreams, which is now out and available on DriveThruRPG. Both of these are fantastic scenario packs. Both of them are very different from each other. I got things I like and things I dislike about both. But the fact that they exist at all is a boon in my eyes. Oh, yeah, definitely. This is something that has been sorely needed. Anunami 2nd Edition was somewhat famous for being good at running one-shots, and people still use Anunami's for that purpose. Even though they've released a lot of those sort of, uh, what do they call those packs? Campaign starter kits, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the campaign starter kits. But, like, it's not the same thing. Like, I've had a problem with the campaign starter kits in general, because not a problem. I like them fine. I'm never going to run any of them. The only one I've run is the one with All Might. Yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat there. I've read through many of them. I've stolen ideas from a few of them. Sure, yeah. And I like them, but, uh, you know, if I'm running my own game, one of the big reasons I'm doing is because I want to see what crazy bullshit my friends come up with and put up on that yeah, court there'll board. there'll be times when I'm a bit critical, maybe, le- maybe less of Kate's work than Greg's in terms of, like, it... Like, this is not good enough. 
any player group could come up with something better than this. Not everything, but when you're bringing something out, you have to offer gold because more people are going to steal than are going to run it as it. So you want to have every component to be good and stealable. The one-shots are a bit different on that because they're a lot lower commitment than like a campaign is. Well, that's the thing about a campaign starter kit is even more commitment because it's like you're committing to running someone else's idea of a campaign but you're also committing to filling in all the bits that aren't in the campaign starter kit. And players are committing to playing more than one game of a character they didn't come up with themselves. It's like, it's a harder sell than I think they might realize. Yeah, no, I agree. Like the, the great thing about RPGs is just how little space there is between idea guying and like actually presenting stuff creatively through the medium, right? And, you know, a campaign starter kit, you lose all the fun of idea guying and then have to do all like the actual campaign work. Yeah, and that's why I think campaign starter kits, my favorite is probably the Allmart one, the name of which I have forgotten. Do you remember that one? Uh, Raiders of the Lost Mart. Yeah, Raiders of the Lost Mart. And I think one of the reasons why I like that one the most, even though I have problems with it, it's because it's not just a campaign starter kit, it's sort of like a mini setting within the Unknown Army's world. And yeah. that's what I think more of the campaign starter kits should be. Because they can be run as, you know, as a campaign starter. Yeah, but, treating like, them more like gazetteers, which is kind of what Paris, Texas versus the 333rd Ripe does, right? Yeah, that's cool. I like that one too. Again, yeah. I, I probably wouldn't run it flat. I wouldn't be against running a, a variation of it because that's quite a good one. But it's full of good ideas that are easy to steal. I mean, the nice thing about Unknown Armies is the setting is so eclectic. There's very few things that are really strongly tied into the setting. At least usually. We'll be kind of getting at that a bit with uh, some of Kate's stuff. Well, that's the thing that's always been the problem with Unknown Armies and the way people have apprehended it. It's been a strength and weakness. And one weakness is that a lot of people, especially back during the 2E days, were a bit intimidated from approaching the game because it wasn't really clear what to do even though the game itself gave many options and many ideas it still sort of throws people a li- little bit for a loop but that's things where things like the all marts or the raiders of the lost marts structure and even things in groups like the the, the mac attack structure or the sleeper structure makes it easier for people to rock you know what i mean yeah but that's the nice thing about one shot is it's a low commitment quick way to kind of give potential players a taste of like hey here's what ua is because it's, as we've talked about before, kind of... UA is less of a setting or a game system even as much as it's a vibe. It's a way of life. It's a philosophy. <laughs> Above all else, just kind of like a just a, a feeling. It's a, it's a certain lens through which to kind of do urban fantasy. When you look at the other sort of urban fantasy games out there, like, Anunnabis does have, like, it's a very distinct flavor that you don't see elsewhere. I mean, even things like cult and stuff, and cult is distinct, but it's also not because it's in a milieu of the Gnostic late 90s tradition and, like, your... Clive Barker, like, uh, Lord Come in the Sephiroth. And that's cool, too. And that, that's a dynamic, that's an ethos, and I can... There's a place it for it. it. There's a place for it. <laughs> Yes, there's a place. Of course there's a place. There's always a place. But if you like your kind of edgy urban fantasy without wanting it to be like a Lars von Trier movie, Unknown Armies. Well, it can be a Lars von Trier movie. It can literally it can be, be a Lars von Trier movie. It doesn't really have to be the way that cult... Well, cult doesn't have to be either, but you, you get what I mean. They're, they're, they're going for different things. And the, the big reason, the big thing that draws me to Unknown Armies and its take on urban fantasy is magic is sort of a 
last solace of the desperate. It's it's not a you're secretly special and there's this entire secret world for you to join. It's not the world is super fucked up and everything's terrible and you just need to open your third eye and see the truth. It does have a bit of that. I mean, it's not like terrible in the way cult or arguably um, like mage is. It's terrible in the sense of like you finding out how the government really works. Well, I think, how about this? With games like Cult and other things in that milieu, it's like, it was hard, and also like Mage the Ascension and things, it was about discovering that the world, the mundane world, is like a cover for a much more amazing, mystical, like, reality behind it, like yeah. the secret reality, right? And Unknown Armies has, does have that, but it's recursive because the secret reality is dependent on bullshit in the mundane world that's part of it it's like just also the vision of like all right there's the secret reality it's not special though like everyone in it is just as much of a fuck up as and often even more of a fuck up than people uh among the mundies sure and you could sort of see how it could come about like a game like unknown armies how it came from designers of a game derived from call of cthulhu occasionally getting disaffected by that but still being influenced in the liking to play a character who's not really like a power gamer type character, not like a power fantasy, but rather just yeah. like a hapless, like someone who's hapless and just try to get by. I think what UA ultimately is, is you have people coming from like sort of the Chaosium, Call of Cthulhu, RPG design lineage, kind of yeah. that sector of things, and their reaction to World of Darkness. Sure. And being like, okay, um, wait, no, this isn't a disempowerment fantasy at all. You want to see a disempowerment fantasy. Unknown Armies allows you to have a power fantasy, but you have to oh, work sure. for it. <laughs> like, yeah. And it's a double-edged sword. Like, the, a lot of the appeal of Call of Cthulhu was just, you know, watching your character slowly disintegrate and kind of having the chance to play that out. That, that's the fun bit, really. And you, and you ways about watching your character slowly disintegrate, but in this case, it's entirely his fault. Yeah, he can't. He can't blame it on uh, malice from beyond the stars. It's it's you did it. To bring it back to what we're talking about here, that's one of the big things that was very interesting to me about reading American Dreams, and that it's oh, so yeah. much more hopeful than like the vast majority of the UA stuff I've read or fuck written. Well, this is part of the I know the philosophy that. Kate uses, she prefers like characters who are trying to fight for something, like, uh, which I think is a good way to go about it because it really leads into like the objective system and like wanting to get things, wanting to get, and in this case, wanting to get good things or things that they think are good. She went over this during her interview and she goes over this in the text. She leans heavily into the whole thing of third edition. You are trying to fix the world. Yeah, and I think or that's good. Your characters that's, are trying to fix the world. I mean, yeah, and it's it's not the only way you can run on armies, but it's a good, solid, probably healthy way to run on armies, to be honest. I don't like to say what is and isn't healthy. It's, that's true. I mean... I, I will always advocate for the freedom to play a complete shitbag at the table. Because it's not real. It's not real, and sometimes playing a playing a asshole is fun, as long as everyone's on the same page. This is how unknown armies can, like, it can support games where people have noble goals 
and uh, like fighting to make the world a better place. And it can support a game where people love fuck-ups trying to do evil shit or fuck-ups who are trying to do selfish shit. Or fuck-ups trying to fix the world, but, you know, what their idea of fixing the world is, however fucked up it may be. Or fixing the world for selfish reasons or, like, all sorts of things. It's all about obsession. There's all kinds of obsession. Well, I know a lot of people are trying to fix the world for selfish reasons. Oftentimes, it's totally justified. Because, yeah, fix is a big word. Yeah. And it means different things to different people. And the problem in the world is different for different people. Definitely two out of three of this scenario's American Dreams are really strongly about, like, okay, here's a real problem that exists in real life just as much as it does in the game world, though it affects the game world and the pre-gens in it. Let's, let's do something about this. Let's not have to shut up. And I'll be straight up, this scenario pack... American Dreams wears its heart on its sleeve. If you are someone that really liked the campaign starter kits like Derby Girls, Attack DC, or the violence inherent in the system, those ones with a very strong, like, activist social justice-y bend to them, this is like that, you'll love this. It's true that if you like that, if you like those ones, you'll like this. But I will say, in some ways, if you didn't like those ones, it doesn't mean you won't like this. And I think it's partially because of the way I find Kate's writing style is quite good. And I'm going to look into, like, especially, it starts off with a content warning. And I'm not usually a big fan of content warning, but basically, I like the way it's written. Um, and it just leads, it's one page and leads straight into, like, running on an army. It, it doesn't overstay its welcome. It's very much... It doesn't point fingers. It's it's good. It's just well written, and it that cover, that carries through in um, the ethical principles that she mentions writing Motown Showdown. Yeah, that's kind of the interesting thing about this, and it, it very much comes from the story game tradition, and sometimes kind of like yes. the LARP tradition. Honestly, it doesn't yeah. present itself as super objective. The way, like, just most RPG writing does in general, like, are there, it's full of asides where Kate's saying, like, hey, I ran this. Here's what my goals were for running this. Here's what I think you should do to kind of really get across the truth of the uh, fucked up oppression that's going on in this situation. It reminds me of, like, like, this is, might be a bit of a deep cut to some of the audience, but... Pelgrane's hashtag feminism. I don't think I've read that. It's a bunch of very small one session story games, you know, about like feminist themes in one way or another. Usually about, you know, confronting some sort of fucked up thing about the experience of that whole thing. And Assembly has like a lot of asides like, okay, here's how to handle this topic tactfully. That's that's a useful way to present it as well. Like be like it's written. Like I find that the way Kate wrote it was very just useful and not telling you, not telling the reader what to do, but saying yes. like this is what I did and this is why I did it. And I'm like exactly. that's a fantastic way to present that. It's it's very much. It's not like trying to present it objectively. It's like all right, here were my goals. Here's how I chose to try to handle this well. Here's what I think you should do to try to handle this well. 
but you know it doesn't it never feels like she's talking down to you or anything no i'll be totally straightforward like whenever i read asides like that my contrarian ass is always like okay no here's how i can do this well while still not following your advice that just shows the importance of tone yeah it's never presented in a way that feels like this is the way to do this right you're a bad person yeah. if you don't do it this way. It's, it's never like that, which is real nice. And she's dealing with some, like, heady shit. Yes. The three scenarios in this book are runoff, where you got, like, a group of nerds in a small-town farming community trying to defend their friend who is trying to be sacrificed by their dad to cleanse pollution from the community's crops. Kind of a interesting sort of spin on the whole children of the corn sort of deal. Next one is Firestarty where everyone is playing avatars of the Firebrand who are also Maoists in the swamps of the Okefenokee region of the American South. They are trying to set off the revolution. All is not as it seems uh, among the party and yeah, there ends up being sort of a power struggle of who is actually going to lead the revolution. And the last one is Motown Showdown, which is actually kind of like two scenarios in a sense, because it's about yeah. two cabals butting heads against each other about how to best handle Detroit's crippling transportation problems. One, a group of uh, urbanomancers trying to get the public transportation system a lot better. Another one, a group of Viaturges trying to uh, fix the Detroit automotive industry. With that one, I'd kind of like to see if there'd be a way of uh, running that with two GMs going up against each other. Oh, you could do it. You'd have to, yeah. There's not like a lot of, there's not really advice for it in the uh, text itself, but I could definitely see it. Pulling out those kind of shenanigans is always kind of Yeah, yeah. It would require, like, a lot of uh, work on the part of the GMs that the scenario as presented here doesn't really give you the tools to do. This isn't to say that this is lacking in tools, though. These scenario packs are very fully featured. They got, you know, your pre-gens, and they got something that I haven't seen anywhere else and I love. They have each of these scenarios... Separately formatted outside of the initial PDF in such a way that they can be printed out as zines. That is true. I didn't think of that, but you're absolutely right. And that is, especially for like running something at a con, that's fucking phenomenal. Just A plus on Kate for that idea. That is so good. That is so good. I have issues with the usability for this in other places, but just I've never seen that zine idea anywhere else. I was super stoked by that. That's a great way to package this stuff in a much uh, easier to deal with and run package, especially when you might not have like a laptop available. Exactly. And also that element of being easy to use and having lots of information is reflected in a lot of the times when looking at the, uh, the GMCs. If there's a GMC with like some weird ability, like for example, there's a, an avatar of the salesman in Motown Showdown. And when she gives the NPC, she also includes, like, the percentile effects from Book 5. 
And it's like, oh, so those are the things that you need to use to play this game without digging up book five. And I'm like, thank you for including that. That's fantastic. Yes, agreed. That's, I always fucking hate that whenever, like, I'm reading through or got, or even like, especially when running a scenario for any system, they're like, hey, uh, yeah, just check the, uh, this monster or magic item, whatever the fuck you're using. Yeah, the stats are listed on this page in this book. And it's like, dude, you published this. Just include the, include the fucking stats. I was comparing this to Bring Me the Head of the Compass Saint Germain. And the, the, the number of times that Greg Stolze has that little orange sidebar saying, look here to find out more. Well, he does include like descriptions of things, but most of the time it's look here to find out more. And it's, it, I, I'm just like, no, no, don't do that. I understand it for print books to a degree, but for something that's like definitely getting designed as a PDF in mind, we aren't scrapping for space here, dude. Just like include the stats. We'll we'll get into this a bit. Before we go on, I I would just like to kind of recuse ourselves, explain what bias we have for both these things we're talking here. Uh, I personally playtested both one of the Bring Me the Head scenarios and one of the American Dream scenarios. And Torm, I believe you ran all of the American Dreams ones, right? No, no, I didn't run uh, Motown Showdown. Okay, yeah. And actually, Torm was GM when I was uh, playing in Firestarter. And it was a ton of fun. I really, really enjoyed playing in that scenario. It was a good time. So how you want to tackle these? Uh, in order? Reverse order? Let, let's go through the button in order. So American Dreams comes from Kate feeling like there's a lack of really good introductory one-shots for Unknown Armies, 3rd edition especially. And her wanting to write a few of those. And I don't really think that these work too great as intro scenarios, especially for, a, for someone GMing Unknown Armies for the first time. I think that um, Marie in Three Parts probably does that a bit better. Yeah, I especially feeling that because Runoff doesn't really have a strong sense of direction, in my opinion. It has a solid opening. Your friend, who is one of the pregens, just stumbles into your friendly local game store that's sort of the uh, framing device of the Kapal. And it's like, hey, my dad's trying to sacrifice me to the land. I need your guys' help. And just sort of goes from there. And then it sort of peters off into... Well, it's not so much peters off, but then it veers off into the directions of... Hey, the city council is doing this messed up stuff that is causing a lot of the runoff. And if you can do that, then the, the sacrifice part doesn't need to happen. Perhaps with sustainable agriculture, I can prevent being sacrificed by my own father. There's all this stuff about just the dad being not happy about having to kill his own child, but, you know, he's got to do it for the farm. But the way it's written up, it doesn't really feel super convincing. And then there's this whole agromancy bomb being dropped of, hey, farm magic does really exist. By the way, you guys, who are presumably entirely new players that are completely unfamiliar with the whole Unknown Armies, Maloo. Now, as far as magic schools to kind of introduce people to unknown armies with agromancy is probably one of the better ones to immediately grok, right? Like, we're talking about uh, 
Sure. Children of the corn wicker man sort of shit. But I mean, that's kind of like the the whole thing. There's just when I was reading it, it felt very loose in the sense of like, okay, I'm not sure how much I see this going in the direction that sort of the scenario seems to be implying. That's the problem I had when I ran it because my players just didn't want, they just left town. And even there's even a page that he's included. Like what if the real runoff was us? And I think my game is partially part of why this exists, this one page, uh, because my players did run off and I had to improvise, which was fine. But it meant that a lot of the information didn't get used. That that whole like page, there's just this this resignation to it. That's like no, oh, I understand crap. it. I uh, yeah, I completely I understand that. As a creator and a writer, I'm like I felt this before. Oh yeah, I know exactly where she's coming from there. But it, that's kind of the thing with a really good one shot is you do kind of need to include a strong reason for the players to stick around. She does include some stuff there, and, like, a lot of it just comes down to, like, oh, right, these people's motivations really would logically steer them back to deal with some of the stuff in character. But out of character, there's... It's very understandable why players are just like, okay, let's, let's just get the fuck out of Dodge. And I think this comes from sort of the story game perspective of very much operating on the assumption that players are really kind of trying to do the method acting thing, you know, play to lift, which that assumption isn't quite as much there with sort of the Call of Cthulhu, more simulationisty, quote unquote, tradition that earlier editions of Unknown Armies come out of. And it can be hard to square that circle sometimes, especially considering how story gamey third edition is. One of the biggest leads you can get to move forward is to go back to the farm and ask that player character's mom, like, hey, hey, where do we go next? And I'm just thinking, like, all right, if I was playing this game, the last place I'd want to go would be the farm, especially when there's these weird dirt golems protecting it. Like, that, that is the thing with a good one-shot. You don't need to so much erect railroad so much as just good fencing. Uh, a a, a yeah. good RPG scenario is like the Truman Show kind. of. The walls are there, but it should be set up in such a way that you are going to be pretty naturally and convincingly guided away from them. Player characters are like goats. They'll get over the fence or the wall or the railroad if they want to. But you put the fence there and you fix the fence to deter them. Well, and the trick is to make sure that they don't want to. Make sure there's lots of food where they are, lots of things that they're interested where they are, so they're not likely to find a way under that fucking fence. So I have to walk around with planks of wood, fucking attaching them to the bodies. But anyway, sorry. This scenario hits home uh, in multiple ways as of recently, doesn't it? These fucking goats, they can't handle them. Every day. Then the other thing for me, like, far as, like, player motivation stuff, a lot of the characters in this scenario, player characters and NPCs, did feel kind of flat to me, honestly. I agree. There's a lady named Karen who runs the fucking city council, and she's cheating on her husband, and she's described a couple times as having, I want to speak to the manager energy. I actually disagree with you on the DMCs on Karen, uh, specifically, 
because I don't really, I don't mind. She's just a Karen and she called, and so Kate called her Karen and she fills the role of the antagonist. I want them to ideally have, have like a fun spin on them. Like, okay, if there's this agrivancer cult in the town that she have her involved with it. You know, every time she goes into Ace's hardware to, to get the wicker used to um, build the effigy they're going to be burning. Uh, she always spends 45 goddamn minutes trying to barter down the price on it and brings like an entire pocket full of coupons, half of which are expired. You know, put a I spin mean, on yeah. it. And then her husband's name is Brad. And then there's the cops who are just described as like they're small town bullies. And then like the pregens, I know, like I, I wasn't getting like a strong, like honestly, like most of what I was getting was like, all right, I understand what their hobby is. I understand what their professional background is. And I know what identity categories they fall under. That's not in of itself a character. Like if you, yeah. I've known a few non-binary people in my day and each of them have in, have had entirely different relationships with gender. So sure. you cannot just tell me this person is non-binary. I want to know what spicy type of non-binary they are. Cause there's so many. It's an umbrella category. It's not in and of itself a thing. Whether they're someone whose gender is just shrug or a third or seventh bespoke new gender. I mean, yeah, those all represent different like personality types as well. Because if someone, if you say someone's relationship with gender is shrug, it's telling you something like about their gender identity and about them as a person. And there, I mean, and there's also a character that's kind of ambiguously. And this is like more of a technical writing thing. They are always described on a first name basis. Like I, I think you had the same thing. It's like, okay, is this person supposed to be non-binary or is this just kind of Kate trying to write this pre-gen in such a way that you could go with any gender when playing? Which is fine. Yeah. I, I think just being upfront with that, though, is the way to go about it. Do they just refer to themselves in the third person and everyone just kind of rolls with it? I like that idea. That's also very unknown hummies as well protagonist syndrome or weird kind of um, solipsism. And mind you, this flatness of characters, I do want to say the later scenarios I love and address a lot of my problems with this. This essentially just kind of got with runoff was like, all right, this is some of the first RPG content that a person is writing and they're still kind of trying to get, you know, get their grounding and figure out what works and doesn't. You know what I think would be good to like set the characters like a bit more like get a full idea of who they are. What I would like to do, because it starts off with this, they're all like a gamer group. Uh, like, like, well, not all of them, but uh, they're they're playing um, uh, Lovecraft inspired RPG, Mysteries of the Migo or Mysteries of the Migo. So you could easily do. I would do like a two parter. The first one is just them playing Mysteries of the Migo and have like an unknown army's weird version of Call of Cthulhu because that would be fun to like. For me, especially, it would be come to like it would be fun to think up like what is the Anunnaki's version of Call of Cthulhu like? It's probably just Call yeah, of Cthulhu, you, you did that different... sort of like weird uh, pseudo world building that Unknown Armies yes. does to avoid copyright yes. claims, and this is full of that. Yes. Oh no, I love it because it's in multiple times in multiple scenarios. I think maybe in all of them. Yeah. Actually, no. At least she, she creates an entirely like new off-brand version of Detroit's industrial history. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But also, I'm thinking about the fact that she keeps name-dropping Allmart. When there's, like, an off-brand version of something that everyone knows, it's kind of lame, unless it, you keep showing up. 
like how they have like the uh, red apple cigarettes that show up in all those movies and things like that. When it's when it's that, it's cool. I like it. And so with like when she's bringing in things like Omar and other things that have appeared in the canon, such as it is, it does add some consistency, which I like. It's also a fun thing the poll never wins. Wait, Walmart? What the fuck is Walmart? That's not a place. That has a terrible name. Presumably, uh, Walmart is owned by the billionaire Alton family. Well, think of, if you lived in a universe with an Walmart and someone came and said, actually, it should be Walmart, you'd be like, what the fuck are you talking about? What, with one L? What the fuck does that even mean? That's not a word. Piggly Wiggly. Okay, now you're, you're telling me <laughs> that there's a grocery <laughs> store named Piggly Wiggly and there's hundreds of years. That, that's the most embarrassing Mandela effect to have. End up in the universe where Piggly Wiggly doesn't exist. But needing one. You need to find a Piggly Wiggly. A lot of that just comes down to, like, a lot of these character descriptions are, like, some of them are as short as, like, one long paragraph. I'm used to, like, one-shot scenarios where the character's bestoke backstory and psychology is given an entire page. Yeah, but some people don't like that either. Some people just want that one paragraph to get your head around. Like, I'm cool with it, providing your, provide you're very good at, like, that economy of writing. They, I don't get enough from these short paragraphs to really give me a strong sense of the character I'm playing. And I know that there are some schools of kind of one-shot pre-gen writing that like that, that like to kind of leave those spaces there for the player to fill out themselves. But since some of those spaces are also explicitly left as blanks by Kate, signposted as, hey, these are the Mad Libs spaces in this mad world to fill out. If she wants to keep those areas more open for players to fill in, then she should, you know, have a list of a few leading questions. Because that also fits in with the whole story gimmick's way of doing things. Too. Even though, as you say, they're probably not that great for in terms of being introductory one-shots, but it's not like we have much to choose from. And to be fair, that's hard. Yes. Unknown Armies is a hard thing to introduce in one session and to introduce in its like totality i don't think it's really possible honestly but on the other hand she could have like taken all these characters could be as is but with a plus uh, plus some a bit more like wokeness to the occult underground that they could use maybe it's not even that i just want like a bit more about them like i like one of the big things for me was with um the kind of driving force of the scenario being the farmer that uh wants to kill their kid to sacrifice to the land i didn't really get a strong sense of inner turmoil there and now that's in and of itself a kind of interesting character yeah he's like yeah it sucks that i have to kill my kid but you know if i had to slaughter i had to slaughter a prized uh family cows before that's what being a farmer's like i mean i don't know how many agribances you've met but that's pretty yeah. much just how they yeah. are Make that more explicit. That's a big thing. Like, I, I think that the, the, the two issues I have the snare really are kind of just the flatness of a lot of the characters and the lack of direction. Uh, like, honestly, I think including, like, one more scene that's another lead to follow up after the game store and including another paragraph for each character in the scenario, NPC and player character, would fix the majority of my problems. Oh, yeah, but the reason I was talking before about them playing, like, a game of Mysteries of the Amigo is not just because I enjoy, like, making up, like, fake versions Could come up with meta bullshit? But yeah. also, a way to, like, establish or maybe invent the dynamics of their relationship so that the players care more about these characters. One of the things that I do really like that Kate does is she... Those things that she leaves blank, their relationships. And that yes. is a really yes. good way to immediately get players invested in the, well, relationships between these fake characters. Uh, having that initial choice that 
really allows players to have a bit of input on what this whole thing is going to be like. Now, if only the Unknown Army's three relationship system actually had some more meat to it. You could also, again, with my idea of having them run the game, you could have them be like, they're my protege because they don't know this system well. They're only used to playing, uh, <laughs> like, uh, Drakes and Dragoons, the Napoleonic-era fantasy game that's uh, very popular in the Unknown's universe. I could see that working as sort of like a way to kind of, if you have players that are more used to, I guess, more traditional investigative occult role-playing games, to kind of... Yeah. I know, like, I do remember John Tynes has uh, that weird, like, meta role-playing game he came out with way back when, Power Word Kill. All people in an asylum. Like, you know, it's it's the bullshit Shutter Island twist, but it's kind of fun when it's, like, a meta game like that. Where, yeah. you know, all of your experiences in this uh, fantastic realm that you are playing your role-playing game characters are, are actually delusions of the mentally deranged. It was the late 90s. But, like, I am being hard on this scenario, and there is a lot of stuff I like. I do love that opening of just, your friend comes in, my dad is trying to kill me, help. It's a solid premise. It's really good. It just goes in a weird direction to all this stuff involving the, this moderately corrupt city council. I do like morally corrupt city councils. As it feels like a bit much for a one-shot, I think, is the big thing, honestly. Like, I think this would work better as a good two- or three-session deal. Giving a bit more room to breathe. Though I'm contradicting myself, maybe it would work better as a campaign starter kit. There you go. Well, like, that should, we say that, and in a sense it would, but that's also just saying, like, yeah, but we'd never actually run that. Format is a one-shot, we are far more likely to run this. On the other hand, if it was, like, um, it was a campaign starter kit that was more like a, gaz a gazetteer, a then you could get into more detail of, like, this fucked up town as, like, a, like, a more sandboxy. Um, although there's enough information, there's enough stuff in here to run the one shot, uh, for sure. But I like the corrupt city council plus agromancer cult, but otherwise just add this town with its very specific problem. I mean, it's a cool setting in and of itself. Yeah, no, I agree. Like the, do you, it's cool themes, a cool setting. Yeah, it was just kind of like a issue of like some of the execution fell off. The thing with RPG content for me, especially is like, as much as I may bang on about usability, in everything first impressions matter far more i know probably usually within two pages if i'm gonna run something and this has a strong enough and cool concept that it sparks joy that sort of like yeah ah, where you start where your mind starts racing and you start thinking about how you'd execute some of these ideas you know as such as it is that even with the flaws or like the same flaws in it like, if, even if it came out by itself, we'd still be like, this is a good scenario. There's not enough scenarios. Yeah. Agreed. I mean, like, that's the thing. Like, something that exists is better than something that doesn't exist. Especially yeah. with scenarios for a game that doesn't have nearly enough of them. So, yeah. Um, I liked it overall, but there, I, I definitely consider it pretty flawed. But the second one, uh, Firestarter. Ooh. I really like this one. And it may, maybe I'm biased because you just ran a great playtest, but reading through it, I still was into it. Yeah, it's, it's really good. It's really fun. The way it uses the mechanics for the Firebrand avatar and the way it sets up all this great interplayer conflict, which I love for one-shots. I love all that sort of stuff in one-shots. Is It's just excellent. And there's a strong direction what to do. You have clearly set out goals beforehand. You have all these secrets and hidden things that you know about the 
Frank, the central figure NPC for all this. You all have a bit of dirt on him that can eventually come up at the end in this occult Maoist swamp struggle session. It's, yep. it's so good. It's it's and you know you can steal a stump with a dog stuck in it. I think that like one of the advantages of this is it does it does present like a group of people that for a lot of players might be really weird to try to play like a group of Maoists. The, not so hard for me, but a pretty difficult uh, ask for a lot of well, people. Well, it wasn't hard for our player group during the playtesting, but I think that may be some selection bias. That is true. The, the thing that sticks out from that playtest is like one of the hidden secrets about Frank's central figure is like, yeah, oh, he totally murdered a scab during a like Almar strike that happened in the run up to the scenario. And all of the player responses are like, yeah, no, we have no issues with this. Awesome. He, he did nothing wrong. <laughs> but even then, even if it is a bit oblique to some people, like just the elevator pitch of like Maoists in the, what is it, Okafenoki swamp is great because it's immediately interesting. It's immediately like, yes. ooh. I think this is like a pretty, weirdly, a pretty strong introduction for, for Unknown Armies because it has some of that sort of um, down and out element that yep. I like in my Unknown Armies combined with, you know, just weird ideological shit that I like in Unknown Armies combined with just strange cosmological occult shit. Well, no, it, it does actually use and exploit the Ananami's cosmology in a way that few scenarios actually do. And it does it without it being in the way. Yeah, like, I, it doesn't introduce you to kind of the weirdness of Unknown Armies quite with as strong a breadth as other scenarios I've seen. But I think it nails the tone of, you know, all these very... You know, all these occult weirdos with very strange ideologies bickering amongst themselves in rural America. And, like, that's kind of UA in a nutshell. You're getting people to grok the, like, the internal dynamics of, like, Avatar sort of struggles and in the context of something very specific, like the Biostata and these Maoists, right? Even though it's very specific, it could... The lessons that a player, a new player would learn about the cosmology of Anonami's from playing this game would be transferable to a, yeah. another game with a different archetype, but similar situation, you know, like a power struggle or something like that. Yeah, it doesn't really introduce you to Adepts as much, though, and it doesn't really introduce you to really the huge breadth of occult weirdness that UA can contain quite so much. Though, it, you know, it has some of the broader ritual stuff. In the Anonami's fiction, the avatar side of things is a lot more front and center than I think a lot of scenarios in people's games. Yeah. And this is a scenario which reflects that, even though it's not nothing like in like tone or content, like the sort of struggles that were in the fiction in the, so I'm thinking of the second edition books primarily. It's still putting that front and center. Honestly, the way I'd probably handle this would be that just like say straight up, especially for like new players, Use the mechanics of the Firebrand and the Avatar and all that, but completely mislabel it and not have any of the players know like what Avatars or a Firebrand even is. Just have them think like, oh yeah, no, this is just how dialectics works. I mean, that that is completely canonical. That's just how people be. This is just history asserting itself. Perhaps in a more, perhaps in a more prominent way than usual, but as far as the ideology stuff, like my character was established to be both strongly Southern Baptist and Maoist. And I had a lot of fun, like, thinking 
about and role playing. Hmm, how would someone square the circle between those two? Not as difficult as people might oh, think, I think. No, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah. And something that Kate includes in a lot of these that I liked a lot is kind of asides explaining some elements that the reader may not understand quite so much. Like, uh, one of the characters is a Southern Geechee, which I was not at all familiar with. I had no idea what it was, but... Uh, who are the Gula Geechee? They're apparently a group of black Americans who uh, live in the American South and, you know, do kind of, like, shrimp, shrimping and... Well, they're, they're in coastal islands of South uh, Georgia, which makes them a very interesting, um, like, subculture of American culture. And then she includes a very useful, basic glossary of Marxist and Maoist terminology. Here's what it means within the framework of theory, and here's kind of how it's actually used within the framework of, like, the bickering you'll see in these sort of Marxist groups. Oh, it's solid, because it's not really... Nothing's wasted, nothing's, like, there for no reason. It's It all no, comes yeah. up in the scenario. She draws from a lot of interesting real-world stuff here and then gives resources on the GM and the players to read up on it. She includes even, like, a bibliography and a glossary at the end of the scenario pack. It's great. There is an aside, and like I said, she wears her heart on her sleeve. Not even so much as on her sleeve. It's like a, a necklace of hearts. That's how, like, up front she's being of. There's a point where she's like, hey, the Confederacy, that symbol don't count. And I don't <laughs> like that aside. Like, I agree with the political motivation behind it, but the status sphere doesn't care about the truth. It cares about how people see symbols. And when, like, fuck, you have the Confederate flag being used by, like, bikers in Sweden. In New Zealand, the largest Maori biker gang is called the Mongrel Mob, and they famously use the SWAT sticker as one of their symbols. Yeah, like the Nazi SWAT sticker, not and not any other SWAT sticker, the the Nazi SWAT sticker. Now, I do agree that probably you shouldn't use the battle flag in this ritual, but I'd say that should be more on like the you are bringing a battle flag to. A Maoist rebel group in the South. They aren't going to be down with that. And also you could just say that, like, the fact is that the flag of the Confederacy, even though it's associated with modern rebels, it's also associated with slavery and the fact that the war was fought over keeping the slaves. And from, like, a Maoist point of view, they're not... Yeah, It's not exactly. the Maoists. It's the, it's the enemies of the Maoists who are running away yeah, when the Maoists exactly. win. I mean, it's, like, it's kind of thing of, like, all right... Skinheads and shit, a lot of those symbols that they use are frequently appropriated. Symbols of rebellion. Sometimes people are rebelling against the system for really shitty reasons. They're still rebels, though. Rebels with a bad cause. I mean, there's going to be firebrands who are firebrands for... Skinheads and shit, yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, But this this one's not about them, it's about... No, no, no. I, I think it could be a fun thing for drama... Like, if you have that stupid player that, like, sees that, hey, I'm in an area of the country where I could pretty easily grab a Confederate flag if I wanted to. Yeah, it's a rebel symbol. Let's bring it to the ritual. And then just... It's not a particularly rebellious thing to fly a Confederate flag in the South. True, especially, yes. Like, it's not a status to your thing. It's kind of a regional thing. I-, I like the seed in my head of, like, one of the party player characters being just a dumbass. 
grabbing the battlefly. I'm like, hey, here's a ritual component, guys. And just instantly there's like three guns tra- pointed at them. There's nothing in this scenario to prevent that from happening. No, there isn't. There isn't. The key thing I love about the scenario is it has strong direction. It has strong motivation to move forward. I love all the characters. And it's aiming very naturally towards a explosive and interesting conclusion. These gamified elements of Maoism to make a very entertaining experience. This is the only scenario in any game I've ever seen that features a ritualistic occult struggle session. I've run two games with struggle sessions. The second one was after this one, possibly influenced, both involving Maoists. And struggle sessions are quite fun to roleplay. Absolutely. And the final nail in the coffin for me of this is good is that there's a sidebar called from each according to their ability check. That got a solid like 9 out of 10 groan from me. Excellent work. And the last one we have is uh, Motown Showdown. And I was um, a bit skeptical of this when I first heard of it, mainly because talking about it being like two balls of adepts of the same school. And I'm, I'm a pretty grognardy in my like, no, you don't have the, the adepts don't get on with each other, they must fight. But one of the groups is Urbanomancers and they're canonically, they can get along because of their whole thing. And in this, it's, I was somewhat convinced that it's all right. And like, well, in this scenario, it makes complete sense. It's good. Yeah, there's a strong ideological, like, and shared motivation between all these people in the cabal and all like the the way i tend to kind of think of it is i'm more okay with this stuff when there's sort of one character in the cabal that's kind of implicitly positioned as the mentor and guru that has taught the rest of the cabal this particular worldview and magic and both of these cabals have a figure like that the way you have a bunch of adepts of the same type actually working with each other for fucking once is when one guy taught a bunch of the rest of them. Yeah, of course. That that's just how it works. But and it and it falls apart later. But in this sort of this is a sort of situation because there's this rivalry between these two groups who aren't both of whom have like noble intentions, but they have different philosophies about how to improve the city or how to save the city. Yeah. It's it it's a good it's I like it it's because it's like uh it's not because it's you can play with either it's like neither is wrong necessarily you know they just have different visions of the of a better future yeah yeah and speaking of visions for the city this scenario is just it is Detroit as fuck so fucking Detroit like the car culture underground rap techno a bunch of the like landmarks in the city that have fallen into unfortunate disrepair the entire like history of institutional racism involved with the urban planning in the city it's just holy this is detroit as shit i have a lot of friends in detroit so i have a soft spot for the city and spend a lot of time there just kate nails it kate nails it so well on this yeah, I, I liked having the uh, inclusion of details about redlining and blockbusting. Which was new to me. I did question a little bit the inclusion of, uh, even though it's really small, the inclusion of sundown communities, because this scenario doesn't really have anything to do with sundown communities. It's just an example of terrible, racist... I mean, those, those it's still, they're still implicitly around, though. That's the thing. It doesn't come into the scenario oh, yeah. that oh, much. Totally. Yeah, they're around. But... You know, it's not literally sundown towns anymore, but the way parts of Detroit were kind of divided up 
the that sort of demographic layout is still pretty fucking intact. She does have like an interesting sidebar here where she's like, hey, I think like the majority of these player characters should be black. And I get that. But uh, like, there's so many, there's a lot of interesting groups in Detroit as far as their history. Like, for per capita, it has the Detroit metro area has the largest Muslim population in the United States, for example. My usual rebuttal to this kind of thing is to say, like, but if it was if like it was a different scenario and it just happened to have all white characters, you probably wouldn't notice as much. So you wouldn't be like, oh, there's other people. Well, you can no, you, I've I can't think of the last time I was a, I looked at the one shot and it was like, hey, here's the race of this character as far as the pregens go. I mean, you could pretty much tell who the I mean the runoff people. Are, uh, I think they're all white, aren't they? Do they have to be? Does it say anywhere for sure that they're white? They don't, they don't, I think there's one that they, does. They don't have to yeah. be, I guess. I think most RPG scenarios, the race of the player characters doesn't really matter that much. This is one when it actually, it does. It does. And to be fair, I'm not advocating for more white people. I'm advocating for a broader variety of non-white people in the player characters. And that's kind of one of the things that bums me out is that the layout for this... There's a lot of extra space that could be filled in with more character detail for a lot of this. This is a two-column format, and for a lot of these characters, just the second column is basically nothing. I mean, th- this kind of follows the uh, style of the, like, Anonami's main books, or third edition books. Okay, but then compare that to the stuff in the pre-gens and Bring Me the Head. Oh, that's true, that's true. I think, I agree with you broadly for NPCs especially. I think that pre-gens need a good chunk of writing to really uh, evoke a lot of the time, I think. Maybe, maybe not. I'm not sure. In practice, give me... If you can evoke a lot of information in a very dense block of text, sure. But I would rather have more information than less. I think I'd rather just have, like, what what identities do they have and what's their obsession? All right, I'll go with this. Like Unless, unless there's secrets and things. Those are always fun. I don't mind. I'll just be like, I'll make it my own. I don't mind that at all. I like. The, I guess the thing for me is that like a lot of this is like based on sort of, um, you know, people from oppressed groups and the lives those That's identities true. bring with them. But then people are gonna have vastly different experiences and draw vastly different things from the same identity. And if you're gonna be emphasizing that theme throughout this, then writing some up on like, okay. This person is black growing up in Detroit. How have they internalized the experience? What have they drawn from it? I mean, do you need it? I, <laughs> I mean, need it? No. Uh, I don't need to play pretend games at all. I'd like it. Um, something I will say, though, that I love for the pregens, for the Viaturge Cabal, it lists all their rides, which is critical. That's true. That's yeah, excellent. That's you need that. And for a Viaturge especially, that is a great insight into their character. I kind of feel that, like, having bits about, like, how they've internalized being black in Detroit, I, it could be read the wrong way or dubbed the wrong way very easily. Because presenting the character as black first and foremost, or, like, being that big, well, when you could just get that from the two paragraphs they're given of, like, what their lives, his series was like. You could, you could read things from context. I think it, part of it is just a different approach for pregens. I like pregens to have like a very sort of set character. Yeah. 
written in there were their hopes and dreams and yeah, yeah. And to be fair, UA mechanically does a pretty good job of evoking that. Every character you make for UA, you need to come up with at least one good thing about them for the noble passion. Yes. But yeah, I think it's a difference. It's just like some people, me included, really like to have a very fully fledged player character. And I can read it and be like, okay, I know exactly how I'm going to play this person. And other people kind of like to have it more as a rough sketch that allows them to fill in the blanks more as they play. Some people like being told, what is my motivation in this scene? Others like leaving it up to interpretation a bit more. Different strokes. What I liked about this one in terms of the structure of the scenario, though, is how it sort of had like a way like that she intends it to go or it will probably go. But she includes like more than sufficient information to deal with players going, you know, off the rails. A little bit. This kind of is going for a lot of the same things that Runoff was to me, but I think it achieves them uh, more consistently than Runoff does with, you know, keeping people in a given region for a good reason. Oh, because it wouldn't, you wouldn't have the problem of like the players running off because it doesn't make any sense no, within the context not at all. of the scenario. Why would they run off? Their entire thing is improving Detroit, making Detroit a better place. Why They would never run no, off. No, exactly. That makes no sense. And the other thing is, like, it similarly, the runoff ends with just, ideally at least, if the players succeed, these very far-reaching changes for the better in this community, but it's done in a way that feels a lot more convincing and natural than I think runoff does. And, you know, it, the, the, having a room of renunciation in there to kind of Fill in the gaps helps. Yes, it, but not just with the room enunciation. I'll get into that because I like the room. But I feel a much more distinct sense of place with this scenario than I did with um, Runoff. Yeah. The same is true for Firestarter. I, and I think Runoff could have had a stronger sense of place too. Uh, the setting is interesting in and of itself, but it's much more... The, like, the feeling of it is much more like obvious and like resonant. You know, like I said, I Troy is a city near and dear to my heart. I've spent a good amount of time there. And I learned a shit ton just from reading this scenario. Kate did her homework here. But she presented her homework in a good way too. Like she gave exactly the right amount of information. Of the one-shots, far as introducing people to unknown armies, of these three, this is probably, I think, the best one for that purpose. Mostly. If you did Firestarter and Motown Showdown, like that's, that covers your avatars and it covers your adepts. It's pretty good. Well, no, because, I mean, Motown Showdown, also there's a avatar that shows up as an NPC, a room of renunciation. Yes, and a well-done room of renunciation. Yes, a very well done. What I like about the room is that it's very specific to the setting and it shows me, like, because I've always sort of had maybe the wrong idea of thinking, like, when I think about making rooms up, I'm just like, oh, what's something that, like, some general concept? Yeah. Now I'm re like, reading this, I'm just like, no, 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 no. Rooms should be, like, really specific to the scenario, and they should have a purpose within said scenario. They're a good way to kind of um, really drive home certain themes and character conflicts within a game. But they're also just, like, one of the parts of the setting in cosmology that never really, I was never really super into. Well, this is why I want to kind of, ex I would like to explore them later in an episode just for the fact, because, because I, I'm like, eh, 
about them, and I shouldn't be. About oh, there's definitely potential there. There's them. definitely potential there, and this is this scenario realizes that potential in a way that most of the rooms I've seen written up hasn't. The trials are pretty great. Yep, it is a good introduction to the feel of unknown armies, the conflicts that mm-hmm. you see in the setting, some of the parts of the cosmology. Yep. Like, really, yes. the only complaint I have as far as introductions and making this like a really well-packaged and usable way to introduce players to the game and setting is there's not a really handy list of Viaturgy spells that I can print out and have just in like, the center of the table. And Urbanomancy spells. Though that might just be down to Kate not being able to for every reason. Well, this is something I would like to do more in my own thing to it, but I'm thinking... Because of my headcanon of adepts, um, I kind of think of the the formula spells as just in the in the main books as just very basic formula spells. So if you're including an adept or an adept, adept group in your game, you can totally tailor a list of spells for the setting. Because Urbanomancers in Detroit are going to have different formula spells than a Cabal in Chicago or somewhere else. She kind of brings it up with like, hey, just generalized domain effects for adepts are going to be pretty relevant here. Just keep in mind that usually less codified stuff like that has some pretty serious blowback. And the fact that she brings that up at all is great. I've run games of this. When I've had adepts, they haven't even thought to do that sort of thing. And that's something I've thought for a while is a missed opportunity, especially considering it's meant to be postmodern magic. It's meant to be, like, to, to an extent, subjective to the individual. So the existence of like a single set of formula spells, yeah, it, it, of course they exist, but it's not really how it goes, is it? Like there's going to be a lot more usage of random magic, a lot more use, the penumbra of influence you're going to have. And it's good that she mentioned that. I mean, like, what do I have to add to this other than this is a great fully featured scenario? Oh, also that there's great maps in there. All of these scenarios have pretty much everything you need to run them and then some. These are not just interesting scenarios. They are fully featured tools for running good sessions of games. And that is, first and foremost, the purpose of a scenario. She's definitely been thorough and uh, conscientious in writing this and putting it together. And you can see the hard work she's put into it. Down to having a further reading section for a one-shot book. And listing all of the art credits. How much do I appreciate the fact that she has this further reading section, which is interesting and good, but it's not scattered all over the goddamn book. Yes. And it's not too long. Yes. <laughs> Unlike some other writers for this game I can think of. Okay, book four is a vanity project. Just this full stop. I'm fine, because, hey, even when Stolzy's being vain, he's interesting, but yeah. Like, there are a couple of critiques I do have involving the usability of this. I think this needs a couple editing passes. I definitely saw some typos. The big one that I noticed was, like, a paragraph that's repeated. Just full stop right next to each other. Oh, really? There's some kind of weird places where the text is cut off, formatting-wise. It's honestly better in the zine uh, than it is in the PDF, which, honestly, that's understandable having that as priority. That is where... Having a tool that is easy to skim through is much more appropriate, but also, like, the way certain things are italicized, the way certain things are bolded or not bolded, 
thing is, and I see this a lot from kind of people that are still trying to figure out this whole RPG book layout thing. Italics really aren't as useful for skimming as you might think they are. Uh, underlining and bold are better. Yeah, I agree. I generally only use italics for like emphasizing or like names of things. Because yeah, it, it doesn't make things any easier. Yeah, just the big thing is the layout of the PDF proper is not the best sometimes. And I completely understand why, too, because it's not fun work. No, it's terrible. It's awful. Doing layout is, especially if you're also the writer. By the point you're doing layout, you're probably just sick and tired of looking at your fucking words for the, you know, 25th time. Then fiddling with InDesign to get everything just right is just... It's a huge pain in the ass. I didn't use InDesign for my books. I used uh, Open Office, and I had great pain, and it didn't turn out that great. And I used Adobe Acrobat, and it was also not a good time. Yeah, use InDesign. That's that's my advice for people working with Statusphere Resource Kit. My range is I don't feel like criticizing the layout. It's me being anal. Because for me, I'm just like, well, this is better than I did. I don't know how they do this thing. Between oh, yeah. For a scenario, scenarios are the hardest, too. I read a lot of OSR content. Those guys are, like, super anal about that stuff and really conscious of, like, being really polished with the layout, especially for, like, a print book. That's why, like, every fucking OSR book ever has stuff printed on the inside cover. Well, it is good, as you said, for printing out in zine form, but as a PDF, it's fantastic zine zine's really well done if you have an entirely separate format just for running this stuff in mind it's not as critical to have really great layout and to close it off with a comment for the layout there are hyperlinks everywhere in this which i immensely appreciate because yeah the hyperlinks are really good not nearly enough rpg pdfs use those as they should and a lot of times when they do use them, they're broken or go to the wrong place. Every link I tried on this went exactly where it was supposed to. At certain point, you're like, oh, God, I need to get this out there. Go. Yeah. Away. And there's a reason, like, RPG professionals, you know, quote-unquote professionals, uh, the, the companies that are, that actually have multiple people working for them, there's usually, like, a layout guy or a separate editor. Because taking something like this and bringing it all the way through from initial conception, playtesting, writing, layout, distribution, it's fucking awful. It's, it's the worst. And I totally understand people just getting tired after a while. Such are the crosses we bear. But speaking of which, the other scenario pack we're talking about is much more polished and professionally produced. But is it actually better? No, it's worse. I'll reserve my opinion for a bit, but uh, yeah, the next one is Bring Me the Head of the Comte de Saint-Germain, which is this sort of, um, it's kind of a mini campaign, I guess, would be the best way to put it. It's this collection of three linked scenarios with uh, pre-gens provided, starting off with a heist, then you're on the lamb, and then ends with a confrontation with uh, Old Mother Apocalypse herself. There's some things I really like about this. There's some things that I definitely wasn't quite so big on. I've been talking for a while, Torn. What's your take on Bring Me the Head? Uh, Bring Me the Head, I think, has a lot of good things. There's a lot of good things. Let me get my notes. But I, 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 the problem with this sort of thing, as we were saying before with the one-shots, and even more so with like a public, like a professionally, like straight from one of the main designers 
brain to your eyes. The important thing is good PCs, and I just think the PCs are boring and they're both. Really? I liked the pre-gens on these a lot more overall. Well I'm gonna look okay, let me let me let me go through okay, the motivations of the characters. Some of the some of the motivations <laughs> were Yeah, I, I, I think know, I like I've got let, 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 let me go through my list. I've written it down. Okay. Okay, why are you going to steal the head or going to get the head? Plasana, mom told me to. Lee, Dr. A told me to. Jesse, Guadalupe told me to. Dr. Angel, vague elliptony, which isn't bad, but it's vague. Karen, peyote vision, also backed up by Dr. A. Volpo, the, the orthodox order of St. Germain told me to. Dirk, Chirp told me to. Chirp, old mother apocalypse told me to. Darkness, Guadalupe told me to, plus some occult flimflam. Guadalupe, Gibbs told me to. Roger, Canada, which is good. Harper, Sleepers, and Guadalupe told me to. No one has a personal reason to go to get this goddamn head. Okay, no, I, I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, I'll say, so I like the motivations in American Dreams a lot more, but I, I do like the overall character concepts in Bring Me the Head more, because they're just all, well, most of them are really out there. When I was doing the playtest, and this is somewhat self-inflicted, I got stuck with one of the more boring characters, which is Lee. Lee and Klausana are my least favorite, because they are both mundane, but they're mundane and dull. Th th that was the thing, right? Like, the motivations for these characters being involved really aren't that strong. And, I mean, it's, fuck, it's, like, there's a bit in the text where... Uh, an NPC comes up and is like, hey, could you guys, like, not steal this? I've changed my mind. And it basically says, there's a lot of good reasons in character not to do this, but out of character, the, the players are already deep into sunk cost fallacy. And there's definitely ways you could come up with good. There's fucking vision quests happening. I mean, like, Lee does have a slightly better uh, motivation in that he owes this head. He has a debt to this head for removing his drug addiction. That's solid. That's a solid one. Um, but I was thinking, like, if you're going to have a mundane motivation, like, think about this. It's a giant fucking stone head. That it's not actually giant. I, I didn't uh, catch higher. it. Oh, it's, it's like two feet. Okay, but it's a sculpture of a head from 3,000 years ago pulled out of a mound in Ohio, and it ends up, it ends up in fucking Quebec, of all places. Like, if you were, like, a Native American, you're like, fuck off. That's our head. Bring it back. So, and I was thinking, like, you could also do an archaeologist, but I'd combine those two into one, have one character who's a Native American archaeologist, because that would, be, that would be a way to get around the fact that historically there's been a lot of tension between the archaeological community and Native American communities because of misunderstanding and miscommunication and, and straight-up bullshit from both sides. But See, now you're turning this side. into an American dream scenario. You're including that uh, socially aware... Element. Yeah, but like, it's I mean, a so good motivation. Not, it's also, like, those are also, better motivations than. It's a motivation. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'd also have another one who has the same idea of going to get the head, but they're just a member of the Ohio Tourism Board. Yeah. And so, this Native American archaeologist, they've joined forces, but they're like, you know, there's going to be some tension because they've both got different reasons for wanting it back in Ohio. And that's already interesting, mundane characters. I like these cabals a lot in a vacuum. You have the man who speaks to the Sepatol Oracle, or sorry, what's the stuff actually called? That's uh, up, Doctor Angel. Yeah, she. Um, the Sepatol is a great character. Uh, well, not character, but an entity. There's two cool entities. There's Gibbs and there's Sepatol, and there's Fun Bun. 
Like these cool entities in this. The fucking propofol oracle from the matriarchal previous universe. That's great. That is cool. The relationship with Sepatol is, but I don't know. I I have uh, what's my there, name? There's her. There's the Vestamancer. There's the ex Carney. Look, I, okay. Here's my note. Here's my note for Karen. A Vestamancer who can't bear to drive because of an accident. Make her a Viaturge, you coward. Oh God, yeah. Like I think that's the thing. Like I, I these conceptually, I like some of the stuff these characters have, and I think that I mean, like this is why I was advocating for that extra page space in American Dreams because all that extra text obviously got me more invested in these characters because they're more fleshed out with that space, but they have much more ancillary motivations to the fucking task at hand compared to the stuff in American Dreams. And then, like, the stuff in the other Cabal, you have the weird meta BDSM shit. That is that. Yeah, okay. The the neo-pagan werewolf who is the regional manager at a pancake chain. That's great. That's, that's solid. But, okay, when I was listening to the actual plays, because I listened to a couple of them last night, and with the second round, well, I listened to one of the first round, and then one of the second round, while playing fucking Stellaris, the fact that, like, Greg Stolze had to come in with, like, a, a disclaimer at the start, talking about how healthy and uh, good BDSM is done with all these, like, with aftercare and, <laughs> and all those things like that. Like, like yeah, this disclaimer at the front, I mean, come on. <laughs> Uh, of course you need it. There, there's some ambiguity there that can come across there in, like, play that can be a lot more clarified in the text. So I could understand him being like, hey, this is not a good BDSM relationship. I just want to put that one out there. I think it's kind of interesting to have that. Um... It's a lot to thrust upon a bunch of strangers in a one-shot. <laughs> No, but, like, how it works in the one show that I listen to, it's, like, it's also, like, a false relationship that they're putting up because, actually, the power dynamic is reversed. But in play, it just it's just saying, like, okay, so your character is, is just acts like a piece of shit to your character, but your character doesn't mind. I mean, if you, if you come in with that, like, assumption is, like, all right, your character just does that, it's, it's okay, I think. Maybe it's easy to get your... It's not a surprise, then. I mean, like, both those people, as described in the uh, pregens, are deeply, deeply damaged and unhealthy people. But it's also oh, probably so. not... Wrong with that, especially in Anonymous. It's probably not going to come across in play, though. That's the thing. Like, unless you have situations engineered specifically to bring that reveal to the forefront, and it's not really there. Like, you, you don't get this, uh, the reveal of, like, actually, it's this weird meta-BDSM where the guy acts like a macho asshole in public when she's actually the dom and gets back at him later and she's just really fucked up. It's probably not going to come up. It's not a terrible idea. It's not, it's not, I think it's, it's interesting, but it could be presented a lot better than how it is. Yeah, I would agree. And uh, like for as fun of a group of characters these are, they, yeah, they really aren't, they aren't really tied into the scenarios very tightly. They could have easily been, and I, I know I said before, and you said, oh, there's other stuff going on with them. I'm like, it feels like a usual player group. I think these are cool character concepts, and I honestly could very easily steal them as NPCs, but they aren't really engaging to play as necessarily. And I experienced that myself when I was in the playtest 
where I went with Lee. And you know, I was also like uh, on a lot of stimulants at the time and operating off very little sleep. I'll be up front there. So I wasn't on my A game as far as being a good player. But, you know, I was looking at the character established there and I was like, you know, there isn't a lot for me to pull from here to really feel like I stand out. I, I played the straight man, which is always boring because you're the guy that has to be like, okay, time to ruin everyone's fun by bringing up the realistic implications of what's going on here. <laughs> yeah. This reminds me of those big pre-written campaigns to push forward the meta plot that White Wolf used to come out with. Yeah, that's that's what I also thought as well. And that's a... Uh, it is very metagamey. And I have some... Uh, I, it's too much, and I feel I could lose a lot. Like, the sleepers could just be cut out entirely from this. Yeah. This mention. Like, that's a harsh criticism, but it, it's true. And it's I think, like, of the, that sort of thing, this is probably the best you could really do with that. Without, you know, actually tying in the pre-gens in a much more concrete way. If you're doing this sort of old-style White Wolf thing where it's like, here's the campaign you have in mind, but players can kind of bring their own wacky characters. It's kind of like that, but if you're including pre-gens, then use them to the full extent and tie them into what's going on a lot more. Can I talk a little bit? Okay, this is going to be, it's somewhat of a tangent, but it gets more into the meta. My thoughts on the meta over this scenario. And I'm specifically thinking about the human eternal and old mother apocalypse. And they've always kind of felt flat to me. And even reading this, they kind of feel flat to me a little bit. I liked the Comte de Saint-Germain and the Freak a lot more. But what I, my idea of to make the Human Eternal and Old Mother Apocalypse better for me would be to have them switch goals entirely. Because Old Mother Apocalypse has this like extinctionist, antinatalist like agenda, wants to stop the, uh, the rebirth of the cosmic rebirth, wants to just wipe out human intelligence so we don't have to go through this bullshit again. It's a little bit Gnostic, a little bit Buddhist, a little bit antinatalist sort of thing. Just And it's given in this, it's a bitter, angry old woman. Yeah, the first two things you've listed there are both death cults, so it checks <laughs> out. <laughs> you pretty much. I was thinking of, um, if you've ever read The Final Program by Michael Moorcock. I have not. The only Moorcock I've read, actually, has been Elric and a bit of Jerry Cornelius. Jerry, it's, it's, it's a Jerry... I believe it was the first one, and it, it I mean, it's, it's spoilers ahead, but it, it ends it's, it's with a this, book like, from the 60s. go ahead. Yeah, it's, he ends up fusing with uh, Miss Brunner, the, like, antagonist, crazy techno-scientist woman, and the idea is to create the perfect being, and it just comes out as this beautiful, and in the parlance of the time, hermaphroditic being that everyone bows down to and looks around and says, what a tasty world. And I want the human eternal to be more like that. A beautiful androgynous being that's charming and charismatic and gets people's attention that has an extinctionist agenda. Like, that is immediately way more interesting to me. I like how the human eternal is depicted in this, but, like, they don't really do much. I don't mind I don't mind that depiction of the human eternal, but I think I would rather the human eternal was, like, fucked up and evil, but just as cool and charismatic as they are. And I, want, I wish... Like, I'd make Old Mother Apocalypse, like, Old Mother Apocalypse still like a bitter angry, old angry yeah. woman. I would much rather have her being the one who's, like, a bit like um, Granny Weatherwax from the Discworld books, the old witch. The bitter old woman that's bitter because she still has some hope left? Yes, exactly. 
And I, I'm thinking of it's like, it's just the cult. He was trying to retire and he did retire and he's coming out of retirement because the freak has decided, actually, let's just shut this whole shit down. And like, that would be more interesting because it would explain it's the, the bitterness comes out more because the cult just wanted to retire. But no. The thing for me is that still, this sounds a lot more interesting as a novel than a uh, mini campaign. I am actually decently invested in the Unknown Army's metaplot bullshit because mm -hmm. the novels are good. Like that's, that's what it comes down to. I don't give a shit about the NPCs as reflected in the source books. Those are just like tools for me to drop my games if I think they work. How they present the novels yeah. is good because I think Stolze is fundamentally a good writer. And he's probably the only writer yeah. that I'd actually trust enough as a novelist to be like, dude, if you want to push the metaplot forward, just like write into a book. I mean, that would be a pretty easy sell for a Kickstarter for me, at least. Yeah, like do another Godwalker or you. There's like, I, I'm down for more fiction in the Unknown Army setting. And I'm down for more stuff pushing forward those characters. I like his not Delta Green novels perfectly well, too. Yeah. But I want more Unknown Army's novels. I think he's a fun novelist. Now, what it comes down to is I give more of a shit about all those, like, metaplot characters as characters in a novel than I do as a GM and a scenario I'm thinking to run and especially as a player because whenever someone like that shows up I know I know that's like a signal like oh fuck all right cool I don't actually get to make any decisions in this that's how it always fucking is in any anything especially anything officially published featuring that sort of character because when those characters come out that's when you know the writers are like, oh, no, we're not going to allow the players to get their grubby little mitts and actually change things in the setting. I don't know. I still like, like, certain characters like Human Eternal and Old Mother Apocalypse and big characters like Alex Abel and all that. Like, they, can, they are good as resources to have to drop into your campaign. Yes. I, I'm cool with uh, having them written up and, you know, having them as like, here's a fun NPC. I'm yeah. fine with that. But when they show up in a pre-written scenario, that's always a warning sign to me. Especially a campaign. Like, those are the worst parts of to go. For me, with this scenario, it's like, I, I didn't care about Joint Sir. Didn't care about the Sleepers. Didn't care about the Human Antenna and all of their apocalypse. Didn't care about Gibbs. Gibbs was cool. Cared yeah. about Sepatol. Cared about all the, the new stuff. Give me more new stuff. Yeah, let's pile it on. I mean, that's the other thing too, right? Like, one-shots are usually for introducing new people to the setting. Or at least fairly unfamiliar people. Can you imagine running these this mini-campaign to a bunch of people that are complete ponies? It's not for ponies. This is not, this is, this is not for any pony. Then who's it for? Yeah, they're like, okay, I can't wait to play in this predetermined campaign about the writer's favorite characters from the fiction? No, I don't give a shit about that. I'd rather play in my own stuff or my friend's stuff that I have influence on. This is written for people who are specifically playing in the game competition that Craig Stolze ran last. And, you know, I was in the tournament. It was fine. I dug it. But if that's the circumstances you're designing this for, that's, a, that's an even more narrow audience than the already incredibly narrow Unknown Armies fan base. And yeah, great idea, guys. Put it up as fucking YouTube videos because everyone wants to sit there and stare at people's screens for two and a half hours. Make it a goddamn podcast so people can listen to it with their ears. Don't put it on goddamn YouTube. 
I mean, just at least of the podcast, too. It's not like podcasts don't have YouTube versions all the fucking time anyway. But, like, the thing is, for me, right? And like, they were too long to rip! I couldn't yeah, rip them! That's not right. That's not right. I mean, but the thing, like, if you're saying, like, okay, it's designed for this tournament, basically you're saying, like, I designed this content for the 30 people who are willing to pay Atlas Games $30 to play in a game that's run by me. The, the 30 people that exist. And it's probably closer to 50. But it's not like that tournament was getting filled up super fast. I'm not sure about the way that tournament was organized. Like, the the way it was, even. Like, the, like, winnowing the players down. Yeah, it felt weird, like, judging on, like, who was the most, like, doing the best job when... It's ham-fisted and it's, 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 it's... Well, the issue I had was just some pregens are a lot more interesting than others and you have a lot more to work with. Yeah, I, I would recommend Atlas Games not do it like that again. I think they should do more on an army's tournaments or not, maybe not make them tournaments or maybe, or if you're going to make a tournament, arrange it in a way that, oh, I know, has more of a structure to it that's cool. Um, to prepare for this, I listened to like the first one, the number A, and it was interesting to listen to all the way through. And at the very end of it, he's talking about like, there's like, this is fun to run. He's like, yeah, I have to run this, this, how many, how many more, like eight more times or whatever, but hopefully it's just as fun and interesting as this one. And then I was comparing it to how tired he sounded during your playtest. And I'm like, it didn't, didn't work, did it? And that was the third one. He had like <laughs> three left after that. I mean, that's not a good way to playtest something too, because you don't actually have time to internalize issues and like make edits. Because you're just going day by day by day. You're, you're playtesting the first part of your scenario. That many times at the end. Yeah, and you're also like, each time you're playtesting the scenario less times as you're like narrowing people to. Here's the the fundamental question that I have with Bring Me the Head of the Comte de Saint Germain. Who is this for? What's the purpose of this this piece? I, I couldn't tell you, to be honest. It's weird. Like, if you want to f- push forward the meta plot, I'm down. So these, uh, I like some of these characters. They're interesting. Put them in a novel. Release them as parts of a source book. Stolzy's always really great in including things in the stuff that just sticks in my head and won't come out. Like, the fucking jar full of fentanyl lollipops. That's always going to be there now. That's, that, that, that's in my soul. That's etched into my heart with a tattoo gun. It's also on the back of the book on the blurb. Yeah. Like, why is it on the blurb? Like, the blurb, I'm just reading it. When you ask me the question, who is this for? I'm like, I'll check the blurb to see if I get some insight. Wait a minute, this blurb is ridiculous. The bits of the content from this I like are used very poorly in the context. And the scenario itself just isn't that great. That's what it comes down yeah. to. The stuff I've... So- Anything I read from Stolze, I know I'm never wasting my time because there's always going to be at least a few things that are fun to steal. I'm very unlikely to ever use this as, like, an actual scenario that I run. I'll definitely steal things. I'm stealing I'm stealing Funbon and Zephytol and Gibbs and a bunch of other things. Sure, yeah. No, there's a bunch of fun shit in here, but just, just release book six. I would totally run, like, the first part of this scenario as, like, just using the information for, like, stealing a giant head from a Quebecois museum. I'm like, I can take that. All that information is, is great. Honestly, I think, that, I think the heist part of the scenario is a bit too watertight at times. That's also kind of coming just from the perspective of playing through it. 
Yeah. I know that stuff's hard to judge because sometimes you just have extremely fucking clever players and then sometimes they just aren't used to engaging with games like that. In my experience, like, if you have people that are really used to playing, like, old school D&D, they're used to that sort of, uh... But, yeah, when I was playing, it was like, okay, uh, we really don't have a good direction on how to how to get at this thing. Just get the dolly and hope for the best, I guess. Oh, shit, there's a killer rabbit with a gun in its mouth now. What the fuck? <laughs> That's also good. There's a lot of good bits in here. I don't think we're being overly harsh on Drew Salty with our criticisms. I you can take it. He's, he's taken worse. He's been doing this for 25 years, and we say this with love because we know he can do great shit. I don't think this is phoned in, even. It's just, like... I'm not sure what his goal was. Yeah, it's it's not it's not phoned in. He clearly is um, into this, but it's a bit muddled. Yeah, it's muddled. That's, that's a good way to put it. So yeah, I, I think that's where it comes down to, right? Dark Horse comes ahead of the pack. I have my issues with American Dreams. I think it could use a couple another layers of spit and polish. But overall, it's definitely my favorite of the two. And the big thing that comes down to is because I can see myself actually running it. Yes, that's the thing. That's the thing. There's all the fun Stolzian details in Bring Me the Head. And it has the polish you'd expect from a guy that's been making RPG content professionally for 25 fucking years and has like an actual like publisher and layout people and all that shit he can work with. Yeah. But despite that, I like American Dreams more because I, I can see myself using it. And because I speaking of someone that played in both, I enjoyed my time in American Dreams more. Sorry, Greg. Yeah, that's kind of where we come down on this. Um, if you're interested in running like a one shot for some of your friends to kind of give them a sense of unknown armies, then you definitely got worse places to look than American Dreams. I'd say it's up there with Marine Three Parts, and uh, on a, it's not quite Jailbreak quality, but it's better uh, introductory scenario than Jailbreak is. And if you've woken up in an empty room and you've looked into the mirror and found the face of Greg Stolzi is looking back at you, you can look at Bring Me the Head of the Comte Saint Germain. But you should buy it anyway because it's it's full of good stuff. It's like eight bucks. If you're looking at it more as like a weirdly formatted source book full of UA goodness to steal, it's pretty good. Yep. Yeah, I think that's our takes on these. As always, you can contact us on Twitter through at 33.3FM, spelled out, and give us a call at 18333FMRDIO. With that, any last notes, Tormson? No.